summoned through the dimension of sound. People explore the musical world which they believe to be true. But there is a world unheard by some that is filled with stories of an unknown reality, a jazz side. Episode 9 of Tales from the Jazz Side is with bassist, composer, arranger, Sean Conley. Today's show, I have another incredible and inspiring musician that I met while working with Michael Franks, uh, Sean Conley. And Sean and I go back a ways. He's also on my tribute CD to Michael Franks called The Art of Michael Franks. But besides Sean and I playing together with the Michael Franks band, he and I also do local gigs here in New York City. And I'm excited because we're going to be performing together at Montclair State University at the Memorial Auditorium. We're going to be playing together at this upcoming event called Eric Dolphy Freedom of Sound. It's a two-day celebration. It's on May 30th and 31st in Montclair, New Jersey. This event is presented and produced by a wonderful organization called Seed Artists, Inc., and I just recently joined the board of that, and I will be posting on my website uh, about this organization and a link where you can get to it and also about the event itself. But um, anyway, back to the event. Sean and I, we're going to be performing as a duo, and we're going to be doing a couple of compositions, one being an Eric Dolphy, of course, and the other one, uh, Sonny Simmons composition. Performing as a duo. Now, that can be pretty scary, um, especially if you're a singer and you're playing with just a bassist. First of all, I feel it's rare these days to find musicians who can only with their instrument alone provide a complete orchestration of music and sound so much that you don't really notice that there isn't any other players. And Sean is really great at this. He does this extremely well. So when uh, there's a couple of other bassists that I like working with too that does this, but Sean is a is like an entire orchestra. So whenever there's an opportunity, I never hesitate to play with him uh, in duo situations. The performing experience as well as the listening experience should allow us to tap into channels that help us remove traditional boundaries that prevent us from resonating to pure natural sounds, the the sounds that are, are in us, the vibration. Creativity, art, it should help us meditate, commune with reality. Osho once wrote, a creative person brings something from the unknown into the world of the known. Now, of all the diverse languages of jazz, post-jazz can be included in Sean Conley's impressive, diverse, and extensive repertoire of music. Now, there are other words that are used for this particular kind of music. There's free jazz, there's avant-garde jazz, and I am not a big fan of labels because, you know, but I'm on this path, so I'm going to, I'm going to keep going. Now, avant-garde 
to a lot of people can come off or seem to be inaccessible, like hard to understand. So few people will really listen to it. They'll write it off saying it's too ethereal or intellectual or there's you know, way too many notes. And then there's some folks, on the other hand, who pride themselves in saying that that's really the only jazz that they listen to. Now, for me, <laughs> if I'm going to participate uh, or live, so to speak, uh, inside this free jazz world, what better place to be than to be in the company of my guest today, Sean Conley? Um, being with Sean in this arena is is easy because he is, as Osho had described, a creative player that brings a little bit of the unknown in the world of the known. He gives us a glimpse of the universality in this often misunderstood language of jazz. Brilliant, his ensemble playing, his solo playing, his compositions that infuse the textures and depth, blending musicality. He has a powerful lyrical bowing technique. His ability to listen with fresh ears to music and to search for what speaks to him in this honest fashion and then bring this forward to share his experience with the audience. It's so much fun to play with Sean and I am proud and honored to work with him. I'm always learning something from him and what's great about him is that you never feel, I never, I personally never feel like I'm imposing on him uh, when I'm asking questions. And uh, although I have to admit that when I first met him, I was a little intimidated by the the intensity of his focus uh, it, around the music. But, you know, now that I know him well, it's, you know, <laughs> it's so different. He's a wonderful person. He's great to work with. You can find out more about Mr. Sean Conley by visiting his MySpace page. And he also has a Facebook account. So go on there and friend him. Join me now on Tales from the Jazz Side with my guest, Sean Conley. My guest today is bassist, composer, arranger, Sean Conley. Hi, Sean. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you for Good. being a guest on Tales from the pleasure. Jazz Side. It's my pleasure. It's so great to have you here. Now, even though we've known each other for a long time, right. uh, I still do a lot of research on my guest, and because uh, there could be stuff that I don't know. The criminal record. Criminal is- <laughs> Right, right. I didn't really think about that, but yeah. Um, And I I remember on episode six, I had Kengo Nakamura, and in doing the research on him, I found out that there was another Kengo Nakamura who was a soccer player. Oh, wow. Like a really famous soccer player. So now you know where this is leading. Yeah, of course. (laughs) My doppelganger. (laughs) Okay, so while doing research on you, I came across another bassist. Yeah, who's a friend of mine. Oh, you know him? Oh, yeah, we know him very well. Oh, my I'm, God. Yeah, there's, well, there's a session at a bar here in Brooklyn called the Fifth Estate on Tuesdays. Okay. Uh, Diego Voglino runs that, and he often hangs out there. So when we're both there, I'm referred to as the big Sean and he's little Sean. <laughs> However, he's much bigger than I am. He's taller than I am. So. Wow. Yeah, he's a great, great player. So. Yeah, and his name is like the same, <clears throat> but it's spelled, spelled differently. differently right. You know, S-H-A-W-N right. and then C-O-N-L-E-Y. Yeah. I-, I was like blown away when I saw that. Oh, I just yeah. went, I, you know, I wonder if Sean... Well, the, the good part is that he can play. So then, you know, if I get the call in his stead, you know, it'll work out. So Oh, well, you know, you know what? 
I'm not sure about that, but I do know that uh, he can't compare to you in any way. No, no, he's a great, great. Yeah, no, you are man, so. brilliantly one of a kind. So uh, he's, she's lucky to be kind of having carrying that same sound oh, in wow. your name. <laughs> Except for the criminal record. Part. Except for the criminal record, right, right of course, which I'm not, we're not going to talk about. Yeah. Okay. So um, we met. Uh, doing on with the Michael Franks band, right. and we've played gigs together. And you're on uh, my last CD, The Art of Michael Franks. Uh, and we're also going to be playing together at this upcoming Eric Dolphy Freedom of Sound celebration. Yeah, that's very exciting. Yeah, which is like two days on May 30th and 31st in Montclair, New Jersey. Um, and you have actually, and we'll get into that a little bit later about uh, some of the arrangements that you do of, of people's compositions, different sure. people's compositions. But, um, you know, you, okay. I had to look all over the web, and when you look, you're all over the web, and when you look at all the different places, you kind of put your whole story together, which is great, you know, right. like part of your history. Um, you grew up in Kansas City, correct? Well, sort of. Okay, well, um, where, give us the It's truth. confusing. Well, <laughs> I was born in Colorado, and we lived there until I was like six. Then my father moved to Topeka, Kansas for a job, so I actually went to high school, all the way through high school in Topeka. Oh, which okay. is near Kansas City. But my mother lived in Kansas City since I was maybe 10 or 11. Okay. Maybe 11, I guess. So I was there a lot, and then I went there directly from Topeka after high school. And okay. I spent a few years there before moving out here to the East Coast. Okay, so. where, you, where you went to William Patterson. For a second, uh, yeah. Right, for a quick second. Yeah. Okay, now when you were in uh, Kansas City, uh, you went to college there, right? I did, to- yeah. I went to the University of Missouri at Kansas City's Conservatory of Music. Oh, okay. Um, now that program is actually run by Bobby Watson. Oh, really? Um, yeah, he's been there for quite a while now. But when I was there, it was a much smaller environment. And in fact, it was much still more of a classically oriented school. Okay. Um, in fact, they had just instituted jazz degrees for several instruments, but as a bass player, I couldn't be a jazz major because the classical department refused to allow it. They had a very old school mentality oh, about jazz, and so okay, like like jazz, uh, like Lincoln Center was for right at the beginning exactly. before they they had the jazz at Lincoln Center program. Well, I know that um, you played. It said on the site that you played with Jay McShann, sure, uh, Claude Fiddler. Williams. Yep, I always like how they have the artists that, you know, they've got those little middle names, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, and I believe like uh, Charles has a little uh, nickname for you too, right? A little middle name for you. Well, he's called me a lot of things. I don't know <laughs> <laughs> which of them are good. You know, he refers to me as his adopted son a lot. I mean, okay. I, that's his, you know. Okay, yeah, that's what I remember. And he's the only person I allow to call me Shawnee, <laughs> you know, because somehow with him it's all right, but right. normally that one would kind of annoy me a little. Yeah, and that's his accent too. You can't well, you exactly. To, you know, it's so. Uh, when I moved to New York, I did question whether I would ever be able to date anyone from Queens who said Sean <laughs> to me, but I allow it from Charles. And I guess, you know, I'll have to let it go. Right. Well, you know, Charles is going to be on uh, one of the shows Great. here coming up. So I'll have to ask him in reference to. I'll have him listen to your podcast and then <laughs> oh, he, he can respond to it. Um, I meant no disrespect to anyone in Queens. <laughs> <laughs> Clarify it now yeah, before it gets exactly. on record. <laughs> but um, also, there was a, a jazz saxophonist there named Ahmad Aladin. Aladin, yeah. Okay. He uh, was really uh, quite the uh, amazing performer and writer. Okay. Um, he was one of the first gigs I really ever played original music on at a certain level of true, you know, traveling around and touring a little bit. 
and he was sort of integral to a lot of young musicians. You know, he'd bring you up a little bit, you know, giving you a chance to play, sort of teaching you a lot. He was a great, great guy. Wow. Yeah. And you did some uh, arrangements on some of uh, I for did. his compositions. Um, I, at the time, was, of course, much younger. I was probably 19 or 20 and a little more arrogant than perhaps I should have been about my <laughs> abilities. But I decided, he said to me one day, well, can you arrange these for big band and despite the fact that i had only arranged maybe two pieces in my life for big band i was wow. like oh of course i can wow really so you know i had i had never taken an arranging course i had my own specific thing i was trying to figure out how to do you know and it sort of worked i i think there's still occasionally i'll see a google alert that some high school is playing them somewhere and i'm so now did scares you me a little. did you put uh some of these on on do you have any of these arrangements on uh, any of your recordings? No, no. Those are so much long ago, and I, I can't afford to hire a big band to <laughs> perform those works. That would be a little beyond what I oh, can Oh, okay. Do. So they're big band, mm -hmm. big band yeah. pieces. Okay. Uh, Aladdin used to do a lot of like educational gigs with different schools around you know the Midwest, and particularly all over Missouri. And mm -hmm. uh, So he had to have these arrangements so that he could perform his works with different big bands. At that point... There was uh, much more an emphasis in schools on big band playing than on small group playing, you know. Normally, in, well, in even the at, college? The, at the college level out in that area, you mm -hmm. know, the, the schools typically the big band was the big ensemble of the school. Okay. It was very different than when I came east, and the small groups were like the more, you know, usually the ones that they would send around to show everyone oh. the best players. So. For instance, at UMKC, our big band rehearsed four days a week. It was a very wow. big deal. We only had two combos at the time. Now wow. I shudder to think how many groups they probably have there with Bobby there. Wow. Um, so that was the big deal. And uh, the gentleman who ran that department, Mr. Mike Parkinson, he was really instrumental in building that program because he was super engaged with bringing in great big band composers to that school. Okay. Uh, for instance, uh, one of the alumni of that school is Bob Brookmeyer. You okay. Know? Mm -hmm. So Bob would come in once a year and we would play his material from that he had written for the Thad and Mel Band. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he, he brought in a lot of great writers, so that was an inspiring thing for such a small school. Wow. You know? Yeah, that's a great experience to be able to have, to actually have hands-on yeah. in, in doing that. Absolutely. I, 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 you know, I shudder at the fact that there's so little or not, no musical instruments, basically, in public schools. Oh, you know, yeah, where I you, know. Whereas in our, your generation, you're young, a little younger than, you know, you're a little younger than I am. Just a and teenager. Then, <laughs> and in my generation, you know, it was just kind of like home economics. You Absolutely. Know, it was just part of a curriculum. So. Well, I've often thought that in a, there's a sort of a terrifying joke that Nancy Reagan had a lot to do with the beginning of hip-hop because it was during the Reagan years that they took all the instruments out of the schools, you know. Ah, yes. It's kind of an interesting perspective, but you sort of makes you wonder. Right, that they instead of they used like uh, words and lyrics well, and yeah, rhythms. There's, and there's no instruments around. Right, you're right. gonna play over a beat. You that's know? right. That's right. You're gonna use your voice. It's back to you know thinking like that. Right. So hip hop artists, in in a way, owe a lot to. <laughs> Strangely enough, to the I hate to think it that way. Right. But you know everything has a seed, you know, or or everything begets something. Every action, so. Right, know. right, right. That's true. Now you also in in doing arrangements, compositions, you um, you did a an arrangement of an Eric Dolphy song sure. that's on the first CD of yours, or the mm -hmm. second. That's my first quartet. Well, it's my second CD. The only the first one. It's the oldest one that's still available. So okay, but okay. Uh, yeah, out, uh, Eric Dolphy's "Out to Lunch" record was very integral to my 
growing up. Okay. When I discovered that record, it kind of changed a lot of what I thought about music. So, um, yeah, and so, was, like, what, what, like, kind of, you know, what was the thing that made you say, oh, you know, I want to do an arrangement of this tune? Well, because I had in my head been singing that song with this concept for it for many, oh, many years, okay. but I wasn't quite sure exactly how to write it down. Because basically what I was hearing is I was hearing the melody in time, and I was hearing the rhythm section speeding up and slowing down against it. Okay. So I had to figure out how I wanted to write it down. And my friend Michael Atias, who plays in that quartet, right, that's true. Yeah. is really good at writing out rhythms, much better quickly <laughs> discerning what the heck I'm singing to him than I am. So with his help, I finally was able to kind of put it on paper in the way that I was hearing it. Okay. So... You know, um, now the uh, the funny thing about that record, Out to Lunch, is actually if you really study the record, you know, uh, th there's written bass parts. There's, you know, he wrote yeah. a lot. It's not yeah. like guys were just playing under a melody in a yeah. more traditional manner. So I felt a little awkward to take just take away from that. But at the same time, I heard this concept and I really wanted to do it. Okay. Uh, and then that band with Ferona Clough on drums, you yes. know, he was kind of the perfect fit to pull off this concept. Yeah. Um, to not just, I, I was just interested in how can a band play, you know, we play with uh, odd times, with odd meters, we play mm -hmm. over, you know, open time or, you know, rubato playing, you can mm -hmm. play in time, but what about speeding up and slowing down right, and right. playing over the form of it, you know? Right, right, So right. that's where that kind of all came from. So now when you talk, uh, and I won't get too technical, but uh, when you talk about the speeding up and slowing down, uh, th those would be set that would be the set yeah time, basically you know. um the melody happens all in time oh and it's okay. in four four uh, or you okay, know or okay it's in you know quarter note okay. time mm -hmm. and so then i wrote out rhythms that it would sound like me and ferone were speeding up and slowing down against those rhythms. oh okay so i had okay. to kind of find two different paths through the same time that way Wow! You know. Wow, that's really. I, I have to go back and listen to it now because i really uh that i listen, i think i heard that I don't know, maybe six or seven months ago when mm -hmm. I w had asked you to do sure. the show. And so I do start doing research. <laughs> so I, I know what I'm talking about when yeah. I'm talking with you, even though we know each other sure. and everything. Um, okay, so now you play the double bass and you play electric bass. Mm -hmm. um, and what brought you to the bass? I mean, what, you know, did you start off playing the bass or? No, um... My road to the basses is, is, is a little, uh, I think, it's one that a lot of people take, actually. I, oh, my first instrument was I played guitar. Um, I started oh. playing guitar when I was six. Okay. Uh, my father was a rock and roll musician, so I grew up on the Beatles. I didn't know and, that. Yeah, yeah. So, I know known you oh, yeah. all this time, and I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. You know, my in the first three, maybe three years of my life, he was still playing and pretty much doing that for a living. So yeah. he played B3 and keyboards yeah. and a lot of left-hand bass and... So I grew up around, you know, sort of late 60s, early 70s, singer-songwriter, rock and roll music. So I wanted to be the Beatles at six. So I got the guitar, <laughs> took lessons for a few years, but the teacher I had wasn't very inspiring. Mm -hmm. um, so in the end, it lasted for maybe four years, and then I kind of waned on it a little bit. Okay. During that time, uh, I started in the school band program, and I actually played snare drum or, like, percussion. Okay. So mm -hmm. I continued to do that throughout high school. Um, okay. But when I was 13, we really wanted to form a band, me and some friends. 
And like by the this Beatles. time, well, there you go. Still, <laughs> except at this point, the Beatles weren't cool to right, the rest right, of my friends. Right. So that was an issue as well. What was the happening stuff? Oh, in Lord, there I'm afraid to think of you know what we were into at that point. I know that the first song we learned at band rehearsal was "The Car Is Just What I Needed." I remember oh, that. Yeah, yeah. But I know that our first gig, we tried to play "Stairway to Heaven," except the organ didn't turn on. Someone had unplugged it, and we played "Doctor Love" by Kiss and "Ain't That a Shame" by Cheap Trick. So. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember that. That was junior high. So, but to get back to the bass, uh, basically by the time that you know this time had rolled around, I wanted to play drum set, but a guy had already gotten a drum set, okay. and I didn't think my father was going to go for that at that point. Okay. Uh, and then two other guys had already kind of gotten guitars, you know, or there were a bunch of guitar players all of a sudden, but nobody was playing bass. Ah. So it was by sort of accident that I ended up on the bass. Wow. Uh, my father didn't want me to play the bass. He figured, well, I'd already tried guitar and I wasn't that serious, so okay. he didn't want to buy me one. Okay. Was this electric bass? Mm-hmm. Okay. But my grandmother kind of went behind his back and, and for <laughs> my 13th, the Christmas, right before my 13th birthday, she bought me a bass. Oh, so. wow. And it's, but when did you tra- transition? When did you start doing the Upright? Double, yeah. The, yeah, the, the, the double bass came much later, actually, not really till right before college. Oh, okay. Um, my high school program, my senior year actually finally had a string program. They had never had one before. Oh, okay. And at that point, I had not planned to go to college, but sort of in a mad desire to realize that I did not want to stay in Topeka. <laughs> Any longer oh, than really? absolutely necessary. Oh, why? Now, why would you uh, want to stay in Topeka? Just, just perhaps the cultural class, we shall say. Um, I realized I had to, you know, try to audition to schools, and uh-huh. electric bass was certainly not on the menu of most conservatories or music schools at that time. Yeah, that, you know? yeah that's I knew true. I couldn't afford to go to, like, Berkeley or somewhere at okay. that point. So I auditioned. I, I played a little bit in this orchestral program. I put together an audition and uh-huh. managed to get into, you know, a very good school for the area. So that helped. Okay. Even though I really had no concept of what I was doing as a classical bassist. It was oh. very, very frightening. Well, I know you the know. Bowing. What do you oh, call the Lord. technique? Well, uh, it's a, yours is yeah, There brilliant. was a lack of technique no, completely no, it, at that it, point. Well, you know. yeah, but, you know, when listening to you now, forget it. It's amazing. Well, I love the bow. It's and, uh, beautiful. I love the beautiful sound Beautiful what Thank you do you. with it. It's so few. I mean, like, I, <laughs> I've seen it where as soon as a cat, you know, is playing and they pull out the bow, it's like you see yeah. the expression on the audience, all yeah. the musicians. That's when you start to hear, check, please. <laughs> You know, and I'm always like, don't do that, don't don't do yeah, that, don't do it. But with you, it's just so I. Well, you, you, know. you know, you have to get a license for it first, and <laughs> then you're allowed out dead. of the house with it. It's deadly. Yeah, <laughs> it can be very deadly. But you know, so at that point, I really was not at the level I should have been to be performing. You know, as a performance major on the double bass, and okay. the classical department there made it very evident they didn't like me. Oh, really? So that was stressful. You know, I flunked orchestra my first semester. Oh. You know, there were a lot of things I didn't understand about the classical world. Like, for instance, when the conductor in jazz, when he reaches the bottom, like he's conducting a beat. Right. He reaches the bottom with his hands. That's right. where beat one is. But in the orchestra, it's... there's this delayed reaction. Oh. So I remember being like, that he would get to the bottom of his motion. I'd, bam, I'd come in. Oh, and wow. everyone would laugh and snicker. So it's not like the bottom. It's It's like... Pause. You know, it's a weird, yeah. often like this sort of like a little space between the bottom. Well, well how, how? I have no idea you... why or not. <laughs> I know, because I'm like, how do you know? I, I don't know. How either. would you know? You know, you when know. to. Well, but you know, that was the world. These are all people who, you know, they had played strings for oh. their whole, you know, right. teen years at least. These were people who were very serious about it. So, 
And they were very old school, so the fact that I was in the jazz also was not yeah, in my not best cool interest, yeah. you know, for them. Yeah. So. Wow. So now, you know, uh, I feel when I listen to your music and I play with you and everything, um, I feel like you're a purist. And, and what I mean by that is uh, when you're playing your music uh, or, you know, listening to the recordings of your music, it really tells your story. But it does so, it speaks for itself like... There's no boundaries. There's no limits to its expression, mm. you know. And it's because it's like, you know, trying to define a human being and right. the reason for your their existence. You know, it's it really is very expansive. And um, and when I think uh, looked at all of your musical history and I thought about that and the recordings and all the different genres because you can play every kind of genre there is. Maybe from the you know Beatles influence from earlier. Some of the music, though, when I'm looking at the reviews, you're categorized as, and I'm not fond of categorizing stuff because it's just a way for people that they don't really know what it is that you're doing, so they have to put it somewhere to understand it, but uh, as free jazz or avant-garde jazz. Um, And what I'm curious about is, you know, the road we take, like the direction we choose to go in when we're smitten by that music lover, right. you know, um, like some people would be more, oh, I, I want to do the, the Frank Sinatra kind of stuff, or right. I want to do totally bebop. What What is your, um, first of all, would you categorize, not using the word categorize, mm-hmm. um, but what made you move in that kind of direction? Because you seem to, your music seems to be Yeah, very, I think it's moved, well, it. I think that a lot of what I do as a leader, I think of as post-jazz more than free jazz or uh, any of those terms. I, th- I feel like some of those terms are sort of old, old-fashioned yeah. at this point. You know, there's a lot of music that's been happening for sixty-plus years that people still consider avant-garde, and I think that seems a little foolish at this point. You know, yeah, I don't think they even know like what it's it means. New. Well, this is part of it too, you know. <laughs> but uh, you know, I mean, I love all kinds of music. Well, maybe not everything, but right. you know, I love a lot of different kinds of music, and I've always been interested in learning how to play them and listening you know so i like to take from a large place you know there's the world is filled with amazing music you know yeah, you just keep any you just open your ears and it's hard not to be excited by things yeah, you know that's true. um so that's part of it i've always had my hand in at least like at least studying a lot of different musics mm. um but within jazz i've played very traditional music i mean playing with jay mcshann mm. or claude fiddler williams is all about the 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 four to the floor. Right, you know? right, that's true. Um, I played with a lot of, you know, sort of Young Lions acts in like the 90s. Mm. Freddie Hubbard, much, you played with Freddie right? Hubbard. and um, With Nicholas Payton Nicholas or my friend P. Gregory Tardy. That's a very yeah, specific Tardy. kind of more traditional, modern, but more straight ahead aesthetic. Mm. But I've always been, I remember, I think the first record I heard of what people would consider post-jazz or non-traditional jazz music was the Revolutionary Ensemble, which was a group that was... Uh, Founded by Leroy Jenkins, the violin player from the mm-hmm. AACM, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, Jerome Cooper on percussion and piano, mm-hmm. and the great bass player named Cyrone. And mm-hmm. I remember when I heard that record, I bought it at the Topeka Public Library for like 25 cents. <laughs> and I looked at this cover, and I was like, what the heck is this? Because they always I, have such strange yeah, covers, right? and I don't even know how they got this record, too. You know, right. it seems so out of place in Topeka. It still doesn't right. make sense. But I took it home, and the record made a great amount of artistic sense to me that there was something beyond just playing a song, that okay. you know, there's, there were other ways to portray things, that things didn't have to be based on just a form. Right. So I've always had that in my, my music, I think, to some level. 
Mm. I think I've always had a conception that we just keep adding. It's not that we, you know, mm. yeah. avoid the past. Yeah. We just keep adding to things that we can do. Right. You know. Right. Yeah, it's evolutionary. Yeah. I think the 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 thing with the jazz and I'm using quotation marks mm-hmm. It's it's the evolutionary form of it because you know you think of the the slave songs and then you think it keeps building into right. you know the stride piano and ra- you know ragtime stride piano and then the, you know the big band and it keeps going and it keeps evolving and changing and as long as it's doing that it has a live it's mm-hmm. alive. You know? Well, I mean, and you have to look at every generation. Well, not everyone in it, but there's always been people who say the next generation of music isn't the real thing. Right. You know, right, Blue Note true. started as a boogie woogie label, looking backwards, you yeah. know, not looking <laughs> forwards. That's true. Um, That's so true. there's always a little of that, and I think people tend to be, you know, whatever kind of music you're into is the, the real stuff for a lot of people. So do you feel that, because um, I have a couple of questions on this. Um, first of all, resistance. Do you get any kind of resistance from... Yeah, that can happen. Yeah. But I, you know, if I know someone is, you know, only wants to listen to Lou Donaldson records, I'm not going to talk to them about, okay. you know, those things. Um I think everyone has a right to like what they want. It's certainly not up to me to make up their mind for them. Right. Well, I mean, true. I like those Lou Donaldson records. Right. You know? <laughs> right that's um, true. Uh, it's not that I don't. But, you know, if uh, I do find in New York, though, well, I think in general, the arts, people do like to pigeonhole you because it's easiest to say he's this artist, he's yeah. that artist. Mm-hmm. So if I'm playing electric in a rock band or doing a project with someone, I just may not talk about it to the people who don't like that. Right, right, you know? right, right. I'll just go about doing what I need to do for yeah. me and not worry too much about that. Yeah, and that's definitely something I I sense when I hear your music, when I see you play. There is that real focused concentration, Mm -hmm. that real uh, intensity of just... To me, I feel you love what you do. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel that love and that relationship that you have with your instrument. Well, and the other thing, too, is that I do get a chance to play with a lot of different kinds of artists. Like you mentioned that we met with Michael Franks. Yeah. You know, the challenge of playing his songs is is very specific to something that I don't get a chance to do with a lot of different artists. Um, okay. You know, those songs really speak a certain way, and so it brings out a certain thing in me that makes me want to, you know, find how do I do that the best that I can right, for what my right. spirit is and that... Uh, Another music brings out something else in me, you know, and I love that challenge of that, you know, that's the beauty of playing with people too, you know. Yeah. They each have their own individual worlds, you yeah. know, that their music comes from. And know? we absorb that. Mm-hmm. We absorb that and that becomes part of our, our experience and how we perceive as time Absolutely. goes on, yeah. which is it's amazing, especially if you're really open and you are a very open musician uh, when you're doing that. Now, um... What are you currently working on right now? Are you working on a CD? Or you well, uh, I've started a new piano trio project that I've been working on a little bit. It's just in the beginning stages. I've only played one gig with it, and I'm kind of rewriting the music. Um, I wrote the, a bunch of music to play with two musicians I really admire a lot, the uh, great young piano player, Chris Davis, who I think she's amazing, mm-hmm. really inspiring, and... Uh, the drummer Tom Rainey, who has always been since I came to New York, someone whose you know musical abilities you know astound me. Okay, uh, okay. he's c- so completely in the moment, and I always wanted to play with him more. So okay. it was a good chance for that. I've also been working the last year a lot on solo playing. Yeah, and, you that's know, playing. What I was yeah, um, I'm heading towards what I'm going to do for a recorded project with that, but I can't determine exactly. Um, so far, my performances in that are typically pretty much all improvised okay so okay. i like where that leads uh, using 
the bass in some different ways and, you know, using some preparations and trying to find a way to sustain an audience for, you know, right, 45, right. 60 yeah, minutes. Yeah, that's yeah. very hard to do. Well, it's amazing. Um, you play a bunch of stuff and you look up and, boy, that was a great seven <laughs> minutes right there. Now what do I do? Yeah, no, know? I know, like, when I do duo, when we do mm-hmm. duo gigs, oh, man. It's, it changes. You know, usually when you have a whole different groups, I mean, different musicians with you, it takes up more time yeah, in song. And, you know, a normal, say, set would be, uh, you know, 10 songs, if that, if you have yep. a whole group. If it's just you and me, oh, you know, Lord. it's like, you know, 40 songs. Yeah, right. No, <laughs> and you still deep. got, like, you know, the 20 minutes to go. So. No, it's it's a different perspective. And, you know, when everyone's just staring at you, too, you realize, <laughs> right. wow, you know. Is there a lot of bass players that have solo? There actually uh, is sort of a large tradition of that, especially uh, in more improvising circles. Uh, The first person to make a completely solo improvised bass record was Bar Phillips. Oh, okay. And there's a long tradition past him of people, uh, a lot of great bass players, William Parker, Mm -hmm. Mark Dresser, um, I mean... I'm leaving out so many people. But, right, but this is... But there's a there's definitely a tradition of it. They may be, perchance, are not the highest uh, on the pop charts. Right, right, know. yeah. Probably most of... Uh, a lot of bass players listen to these and, you know, other yeah. improvisers. But, you know, the bass is a interesting instrument. It has a, such a large expression That's in certain beautiful. ways. So, you know, trying to it. find more of that. I haven't decided if I'm just going to do the completely improvised record or if I'm going to try to find some way to recombine the sounds. I'm I'm sort of interested in this concept of like between improvised and composed and then how about composing with previously improvised materials. Okay. So, I made I haven't qu- made up my mind about that yet. <laughs> right. So, um and when you make up your mind it will be then when you go into the studio. But do you have Probably. a projection of when you want to make up your mind? No. So that you can... <laughs> well, because I kind of feel like with certain things they take the time they take, you know. Yeah, it's uh, you know, you it's we do need to put out product, but if it's not ready it's not ready right you know, well that's the to... purest part of you you know yeah you have that um, it the organic thing that just kind of stems as it is gives birth you know it, it, it uh um, seeds and then it you know gestates and yeah. then before you know it that's when you're you know <laughs> that's a polite way to say i'm a little slow at times i think but yeah you know no i don't i think it's great i really do think it's great it's, it's i think it's more important to have something that it's you, and you're proud of, and you know it comes from where you are, yeah. as opposed to, well, you know, everybody now is doing a solo bass thing, so right. I'm going to do it, you know, or everybody is, right. you know, whatever. Well, and, and luckily, as a bass bassist, uh, you do a lot of sideman work, so I get to express a lot of different sides of other music through other people's music. Yeah, that's true. You know, that's so really true. that definitely has its advantages as well. Well, I'm excited that when it comes out, when you're ready, um, I'll know probably about it because we'll probably be on the road together. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, okay, so are you ready to walk into the basement with me? Oh, Lord. All right. <laughs> okay. All right. Now, tell us about someone you've worked with um, who was a little frightening to you, but in a good way. Wow. <laughs> There's a lot of frightening people in this business for various reasons. Well, yeah, that's true. You know. <laughs> but you just, just... Well, you know, I have to say, like, even looking back, talking about uh, playing with Jay McShann and, you know, those little gigs around Kansas City, he would never call tunes. Really? He would just start playing, you know, because in his generation, they know so many tunes, oh, you know, right. that... 
they never think about that you might not know it. Right, right, you know? right. And at, you know, 18, 19 years old, I was pretty used to having that real book in front of me at that yeah. point. You know? <laughs> right, right, right. You know, I probably owned 20 records, you know, so <laughs> there wasn't a lot of songs in my head, you know. Um, so the beginnings of that was really interesting to be play with people who never tell you what they're going to play, you know, and so you just got to learn to let your ears open up and hopefully find something in it before he gets mad, you know. Wow. And um, it's so, and, and you know, a lot of these songs, actually the changes are so, um, you know, similar in mm-hmm. ways. It's hard to know like, yeah, what tune absolutely. is being played, you know. <laughs> you know, so hopefully you figure it out quick enough, you know, you get better at it as you go, of course. Yeah. But those kind of things are like, don't get too frightened by playing with people in a long, long time. You know, right, you okay. might love somebody's playing and be like a little humbled to be on stage with them, right, but it's not right. a real fear factor. Right. Anymore. Where you're like, I, I'm playing with this yeah. person and they're, you know, I have some good fear factor dreams though. Oh really? I always have these weird <laughs> dreams that like I'm at home and I get the call and like some band is like, you got to come down to Madison square garden right now and play with us. And so I run down there, and, you know, I can see in the whole room. I get on the, the train, I can bring my bass, and then right as we get out there and you see all these thousands of people, I realize I have no clue who this band is or what any of their songs are. Wow. I think, I have that dream a lot. Yeah, I do So too. I'm, like, watching the guitar, and it's always some, like, you know, teeny bopper rock band, which is another weird thing, because I don't know why I'm playing with this teeny rock, and I'm watching the guitar player's hands just trying to follow what chords he's playing. Well, that's you interesting, because I, I have had dreams where uh, one reoccurring one is I've worked you know, really prepared. Mm-hmm. And this is the biggest concert of my life. Right. And I'm everything. I have all the songs, all the arrangements, everything. I know right. I don't even use a cheat sheet for lyrics. I'm totally right. prepared. And then as soon as I get ready to go on, they say, oh, we've changed all your songs. Oh, this yeah. is brand new. You have to do these. Right. And I've never seen them before, heard of them before. I have that, that dream a lot too. Actually, that oh, yeah. kind of moves into... Um, which actually is an interesting thing because I've never thought about the scary scary dreams in mm-hmm. that way. Is there anything else that you have uh, with, well, like dream in your oh, absolutely. fear factor dreams? Yeah, I like no. that. I, I'm going to add that now to the show. <laughs> uh, the, well, because of the way the bass is, the double bass, you know, is a very uh, fragile instrument, you know. And uh, after years of traveling and you open up the trunk and hope every time it's still going to be all in one piece. Yeah. I often have dreams where I get to the gig and the bass is in like 3,000 little splintered pieces. Oh, my God. And you just realize that's the end of your instrument. You know, and basses are very individual. They're the only string instrument that the exact size of them is really different with every instrument. Really? Yeah. Every other, uh, you know, cellos, violins, violas, they're much more specified the exact lengths and string lengths. The bass, for some reason, has never gotten there. And, for instance, there's two major families of basses where... They call them D and E flat necks, which means when your hand slides down to where your hand hits the end of the neck and it's the body of the instrument, right. it's either a D or an E flat. Really? But that's a big difference. That you is know, a if big difference. If you're used to D yeah, and yeah. all of a sudden everything's E flat, so in, in this world of what we call bass du jour these days, we don't travel with basses like we used to. You know, yeah, used to put it true. in the trunk and spend six that's weeks, true. you know, carrying it around Europe. Yeah. These days it's not like that. So every day is bass du jour. Wow. You know, you never know what you're going to get, what it's going to play like, you know. Yeah, so how do you how do you adjust that? Well, like you just have gonna... to get used to it. Um, for instance, I practice at, I teach at the Drummers Collective, the Musicians Collective here in the city. They have two uprights there that I play regularly as my practice for when I'm not playing an instrument that I'm used to. Okay. Or that I like, per se, the way I like my bass. Okay. So, I just, you just have to get used to it. It's not fun. 
a lot of times. <laughs> wow. You know. I didn't even really know that. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that at all. You know, and if you're doing a tour where every day is another city, every day is a Absolutely. new base, and you have so little time to get used to them. Right, because sound check, you know, everybody, well, yeah. if you, especially if everybody knows the material, you run through two songs. Well, the other thing. side is, you know, and you can complain all you want, but then you just become a complainer. Right. Too, nobody wants to hear you go, well, I don't like the bass today. <laughs> You know, so you got to be like, you know, you got to just sort of get your stuff together, try to be an adult about it. I mean, you know, it happens for piano players and drummers as well. Uh, so I shouldn't say it's just us, you know, but it definitely changes the ball game not having your own bass. Yeah. You know, I've had my same bass since I was 19 years old. Wow. So, you know, I call her the mistress, you know. She's, yeah. And that's how you treat her, too. Exactly. I tell you, you know, yeah, you with lots good. of love and yeah. attention and focus. And when she's not with you, you it, it's a little disturbing. I think yeah. I was talking to you a couple of weeks ago, and it was being fixed. She was being mm-hmm. repaired, and there was a little slight anxiety oh, yeah. in your Well, I mean, missing, this is the thing. Yeah, you missing know. Your... Absolutely. I mean, she's been with me longer than... <laughs> Wow, I'm gonna leave that one alone. Then he had other partners in my life, so. Well, listen, you know. they're the truest. Yeah. You know, it, it, she can always be the truest. Well, so, she, you, know, you know, it's the, the, the truest though if you put in the time to them. You know. That's you, true. You, you can definitely tell those days that you haven't been around. Let's just put it right, that way. Right. That's true. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so let's move to the second okay. question, which is, we, we could save you here in this Absolutely. Program. Thank you. <laughs> what? What is the scariest work okay. in any medium, like painting, photograph, book, movie, hmm. television, radio, broadcast, whatever, that you've encountered? The scariest work I've encountered. Boy. You know, there's a lot of things that can be... Anything that's outside your normal paradigms of what you do as an artist can definitely be scary. But like, actually, the last week... I've been subbing on my friend Michael Atias, who I was talking about earlier, right. is musical director of a production of King Lear that's going up. Oh, really? And uh, over here at the, I think it's called the Theater for New Shakespeare or something. It's right over by BAM. Oh, okay. On Ashland. And, when is uh, that happening? Do you... Well, it's actually this week is their first. We've been I've been doing previews for a week. I was subbing for Pascal Nigenkemper, a great bass player, for a week. Okay. And. To walk into a theater piece where you've never rehearsed and I had to do the first preview that night was very, a little bit scary because you just realize, you know, it's all about coming off the lines of the actors. You can have the script there in right, front of you. Right. It doesn't tell you how, you know, right, the different exactly. actors. So that was kind of an interesting fright factor that first night, you know, and reading the, basically I have the script to the play and right. then just little instructions written in with maybe oh. a couple notes here or there, a little piece of music, you know, taped to the other side. Okay, okay. So that was an interesting sort of fear factor moment. Now, after a week of doing it, you get used to it and everything. Right. But I thought, you know, those moments where you walk in and you, there's no preparation right. for something you don't know is always interesting. Right. I would say the same thing, too, actually, when I got the, the gig with Nicholas Payton. I flew to Europe to play with the band, and I had no idea what music we were going to play because he had never sent me any music. Oh, wow. So the fear factor of that made me get all his records and try to write out every song he had ever recorded just really? so I would feel comfortable. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, that's, that's, that's very, very I was much younger then. I had right, right. Hand. I was like saying, you know, <laughs> you're like winging it. So there's like not a, uh, because that actually, uh, uh, 
what is it, uh, dovetails? Mm-hmm. Is that what it is? Uh, into that third question, which is, what is the scariest thing that ever happened to you while well, performing this one I can live? definitely tell you, but uh, I, I have okay. to edit it a little. No, don't edit it. Well, no, that no, was, no, it was, don't. It was a little scary. So I was 19, and I was playing at a session. I used to hang out at the Muse- Mutual Musicians Foundation okay. in Kansas City. And that used to be the old Black Union Hall down at, like near 18th and Vine where all the historic Kansas City mm. stuff happens. Uh-huh. Um, I don't know if it's true, but I had been told that that was where, you know, Charlie Parker originally met Dizzy in that room. Like, there's a lot of history in that place, okay. regardless of which ones are miss. Um, they used to have these jam sessions that would start, you know, 8, 9 o'clock and go till 5 in the morning. And I learned a lot about playing in there, and I got a lot of the first mentor sort of, you know, situations were in there. You know, things where, for instance, not knowing songs, you know, being okay. young and thinking you're on the bandstand and you don't know a song. Mm-hmm. There was a bass player, Dawood Williams, who used to play with, for instance, like the, the Blue Devils and he right. was a oh, renowned okay. Kansas City musician. Mm-hmm. You know, he'd take the bass from me if I didn't know the tune and he'd be sit down in the front really? row. People would laugh, you know, but, <laughs> but the, it was concept of you have to respect the bandstand. Right, right, right. So I learned a lot in this environment. Okay. So one night I'm playing and there's a gentleman in the audience who perchance past his legal limit, which I'll say, <laughs> you know, oh, yeah, you know, but he's, he's taken to decide that he does not like anything I play, <laughs> Okay. you know, and he's screaming at me. Some of it is, you know, things I cannot say in this, yeah, a little too explicit, you know, but apparently, you know, and, and at this point, you know. I'm not saying I was great, but I think I knew a little more than I was doing than what he was screaming at me. <laughs> right. This proceeds to go on. I'm trying to ignore it, you know, but he's, oh, he'd be like, you know, moaning and all these big gestures, you know, and it's hard to kind of play through this because everybody's watching him do this. At one point, he's picking up napkins. He's making little things and throwing them at oh me, my God. you know. So eventually, I can't remember how many. This is probably a whole set is going by, and I'm trying to be cool. But meanwhile, I'm also much younger. So I'm getting kind of angry, too, yeah, you know, yeah. by this point. Finally, we start playing this blues, and he's just like, oh, you don't know how to play the blues. So I'm like, all right, if I don't stop this now, this is not going to Yeah, exactly. Gonna yeah, go exactly. And also like... now I'm kind of looking like I'm weak. Right. And I'm trying to, I'm getting a little like machismo about it. Like, I can't let this dude do this to me. Right. So finally, in the middle of the song, I, bam, I hit the bass, and I say, you know what? If you can do better, you play the bass. And I just storm off the bandstand. Everyone's staring at me. And I'm like, I go outside. At the time, I was still smoking cigarettes. So I go out to have a cigarette. And I'm like, yeah, at least I stood up for myself. Right. Well, about two minutes later, I'd walked out a side door of this establishment. One of my friends comes out the door and he says, I think you need to keep moving. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he goes, well, he pulled a gun. So now he's drunk. He's pulled a nine millimeter and he's looking to come get me because he doesn't like the fact that I've stood up for the fact that he doesn't want me to like the way I play the blues. So there's several doors to this establishment. They're going, he's going right. So I go left. Then they'll come out the front door. He's coming around the front. So I go around the back. This goes on for about 10, 15 minutes while this guy tries to come get me until the police come and take him away. You know? Oh my God. So at this point I'm like, okay, well I've managed to not be shot for playing the blues wrong. (laughs) And I stood up for myself, so now at least there's a little bit. Now I've also been running for 20 minutes, so I'm not really sure how I felt about it in the end. About, I don't know, maybe a year later, I'm at the bar at the same establishment, and this guy comes up to me and he says, you don't remember me, do you? Oh, no. And I'm like, well, no, I don't actually remember you. And he goes, yeah, you know, I was going to get you that night. But then he says... 
this is what turns the whole thing around. Right. Yeah, because you were looking at my girlfriend. Ah. So apparently the whole thing was in his mind that the whole time I had been vibing yeah, on yeah, his her, girlfriend. Yeah, but it was yeah. actually... Yeah. I wow. have. Yeah, and then actually after that he used to buy me, you know, drinks and we became somewhat friendly. Wow. And then I, I've never questioned how he managed to pull the gun on me and get out, like, within such a small amount of time. I don't well, know. I, but I mean, I just... I would have... Yeah, that to me... I think guns, when the guns come out, yeah. I think that's... You know, and those like really old school too and mm-hmm. those old juke joints in those places... It was so many, so much drugs and 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 mob mm-hmm. and you know just gangster. Everything was sure. was there, so anything could possibly happen. You well, know what I mean? Absolutely. You just, you're always up there, and um, I think somebody in one of the, uh, I think Jay told a story about um, they some guy shooting started happening, and he was playing with um, uh, uh, Carmen McRae, mm-hmm. and she just. Said okay, buddy. One, two. She just kept, she just kept counting it off, <laughs> and it's like shooting going on, yep. and everybody was like, and Jason, he was really young too. Yeah. He didn't know what to do. He just played yeah. because gun bullets going everywhere, and she's just playing. She yeah. doesn't even care. So, uh, wow. you know, jazz used to be a definitely a different world than it is now. You know. Oh yeah, I mean, it's we we could go into that. Yeah, that's but... a whole other thing. <laughs> that's a whole other specific show. It should be yeah. tailored. And for... I plead the fifth on most of that. So. <laughs> Well, it has been so nice to have you uh, I'm do the show to do it. with me. It really means a lot, and I'm glad you you know you're here. Yeah, me too. Uh, <laughs> Especially after that last thing we were talking about. <laughs> that could have been it a long time ago. Right. Well, you got to be careful. Make sure you don't give in in playing the blues. You don't give the vibe of checking out somebody's girlfriend. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I try to look up now. Try to look up. Oh, so that's what that is. Because I'm always you know, wondering. I've always time. wondered. Yeah, you know, but you got to be careful these days. Well, anyway, it's great to have you on the Thank show. Thank you so and much. And that uh, wraps it up for us on Tales from the Jazz Side. The jazz side is always there, waiting for us to enter and waiting to enter us. So, until next time, unplug your ear holes, for you never know what worlds may be waiting for you.